0: All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Um this this book of Hebrews, I was talking to a buddy of mine this week. He's a pastor and we send each other our uh, our sermon outlines um from week to week and uh he's he's really he's just really gifted and I'm trying to learn more from him cuz if you looked sometimes people ask me for my notes. And I'm like, you don't want to, you don't want to look at that, you know. I like guess. Have you ever heard of hieroglyphics? Um, but his so clean. And anyway, he had little yellow highlights on the main points. I did that today. Um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'll probably forget what they're there for. Um, but I was hanging out with Tuck the other night. I, I went up. Stephen and I drove up. Uh, drove up Wednesday night and I watched Tuck practice Thursday morning there in, they're in spring ball. And it was interesting because we're sitting there hanging out, but he's got his tablet open, and he's looking at – he's he's doing play study. And so we're hanging out, but he's doing the mental part of preparing to be on the field. So he's going to play a dozen games next fall, and it's – a really nice evening, after hours in March, and he's studying. And I thought, man, if, if the Christian life, there's such a need to be students of the word, but we're students of the word so that we can go live out the Christian life. That being a life of worship, a life of service, a life of community. So we we live our lives to worship the Lord. We live our lives to be in community. We live our lives to shine the light of the gospel into the world. To take the hope of the gospel into the world, man, we gotta, you, we gotta dig in. You know, you gotta dig in. The word of God's gotta be part of our lives and something that we're serious about. And um, and so as we're going through this study of Hebrews, it is a deep. It's a it's heavy lifting. You know what I mean? Like. It's a heavy study. I was talking to that buddy, and he said, man, he, he's going through a, they're going through a series at their church, and I told him, we're going through Hebrews, and he's like, man, I have not come up with the courage to teach through that yet. Um, it's just, uh, it's it's a, a heavy uh, passage, and I, or um, chapter, or I mean, book, <laughs> and it's words, a bunch of words, and, uh, and so I, I think from time to time, it's important we feel the weight of this, and but, but making sure that as we study things like the New and Better Covenant, that it matters to what I look like on Tuesday or Thursday at work or school. When I think about Jesus as the greater sacrifice, that it motivates my daily worship. Because I'll tell you, man, I spend a lot of my time around heady people with, with deep theological understanding Um, that that maybe can get lost in that and forget that, man, Jesus has called us into relationship. And the most important thing, I think, about the Word of God is that for us is that it has authority for our lives, but it's a revelation of God to us. So we study the Word of God that we might know him, and we enter into his presence in study and devotion that we would know him. I'm so thankful for Debbie Gray. A lot of y'all uh, know and love Debbie, and they've been on the road and lots of prayers for their family and um, particularly for Carissa. But when we were dealing with uh, some stuff with one of our children, um, there there were some exercises that she recommended. And it was the, the idea of the exercise is to take this child in this moment of, panic or anxiety or outburst usually outburst usually outburst throwing stuff saying words and like where'd you learn that we don't talk like that in this house you know like and bringing that kid into this little bitty space where the rest of the world is kind of out there and we're in this space right here and then we can start to to calm things down and to settle things down and to rest in this moment of intimacy between mother and child or father and child. I feel like we need to, that when we meet with the Lord in his word, we're entering into this space where we're face-to-face with Jesus. We're hearing from him. The breath of God is on our face. The spirit of God is binding us to the Father. And uh, I don't want to get far from that as we work through these weighty things. And I had a bunch of conversations, bunch of conversations with people throughout the week, this past week. Saying, "I still don't understand this whole Melchizedek thing. Like, who is this guy? You know, like what what is going on? We're gonna we're gonna touch on that a little bit tonight, but he's gonna come back up even after this week. But I wanted to I wanted to just point something out that I don't know if you're noticing this this, but as we're going through Hebrews. There are certain themes and ideas that keep coming up. We go all the way back to Hebrews 1 and the idea of Jesus as the priest, the final priest who sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then tonight we see the priesthood of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jesus. Jesus as the king of kings. That in all the way back in chapter 1, angels are worshiping him because he is an exalted king. We'll see that come back up. And so I was was thinking about... uh, being at carowinds i don't know if y'all know carowinds most of y'all are are probably uh, more familiar with six flags sean clark is very familiar with disney world um (laughs) but whatever your you know whatever your uh favorite amusement park is i love roller coasters and one of my favorite memories that the i I still think the best roller coasters at carowinds is called the fury and that dude man i they say it's 80 degrees incline but it feels like it's 80 degrees like this if you've ever rode it. You know, it's, it's scary. I've got a good video on my video on my phone of me filming Little while we're going through that thing. And her face is distorting and she's mad because I'm filming her and she's trying to make me stop. But she's holding on and uh, it was a good time. But I remember, I remember they got a ride there called the Intimidator. It's named after Dale Earnhardt and there was no line there. So we just kept riding and rode it. Me and Tuck rode it like five or six times. Laylee, me and Laylee's my roller coaster buddy. We riding, riding, riding. But then you go around the park and wherever you go in the park, there'd be signs to places you'd already been. I remember I'm going over to to take the smaller kids to a ride and there was a sign that said the Intimidator. And I'm like, I've already been over there. And I feel like as we go through Hebrews, we're constantly seeing these signs like, hey, remember Jesus is a priest. Hey, remember Jesus did this. Remember, we're going to introduce, be introduced to the word covenant tonight. And the rest of the study, hey, the covenant, the covenant, the covenant, like so... So this is, this is not a series of standalone sermons. When we study through books of the Bible, things are tied together and we're journeying through this thing and, and studying through it, but then it's pointing us at times back to, remember we talked about this. Remember we talked about that. It's important as, as Christians that as we grow and as we learn and as our knowledge of the Lord increases, as we spend that time in the presence under the breath of God in our, in our study and our personal worship, that our knowledge is increasing and that then we're going out to the playing field or the battlefield or, the, or running the race and we're doing it effectively. So we're going to open to Hebrews 7 and we're going to read beginning in verse 11 tonight and just work through it a verse or two at a time. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So now we go from Melchizedek and we get introduced to this guy named Aaron. And and the significance of that is this. If you're new to the Christian faith and you don't quite yet understand the way the Old Testament all kind of flows, Aaron was was the brother of Moses. And Moses was the man that God gave the law to and when we say the law in christian new testament circles we're referring to the old covenant or old testament law the word testament is from the word diatheke which means covenant so when we have old testament new testament in our bible it's old covenant new covenant okay so when we when we read we talk about the law as we're going to see that pop up continually in our in our study that's a reference back to the order of worship and life that God gave to Moses, and he wrote it on tablets of stone, and it was to guide the people. Paul says in Galatians 3, it was to be a guardian and a guide that would carry the people down through the ages until Jesus would come and fulfill the law, or until the Messiah would come and fulfill the law. So the law, when we hear about the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, but there's a, the Ten Commandments are a summary of a whole bunch more laws. And Aaron was the priest that God appointed, and then Aaron and many of his descendants, there, there, was, this, there was this responsibility that God gave to the priests. Now, in Israel, there were three, there were three offices, or, or insti- like within the institution of worship or the, in the institution of government and, and daily life, there were three offices, the office of priest, the office of prophet, and the office of king. Okay, So when we think of kings, we think of David and Solomon and Josiah. When we think of priests, we can think of, uh, some, of the, some of the priests that we think of that were like really good and faithful priests, and then some of the priests that we can think of were very unfaithful priests. There was a guy named Eli who was faithful for a season, and then he didn't lead his sons well, and then they were unfaithful, so it was abuse of the priesthood. But the priest. And the king served two different purposes. And then the third role was the role of the prophet. So in Israel, you had prophets, priests, and kings, okay? And this is important to understand because all three of those offices answered to God. Israel was a theocracy. They were a theocracy. In other words, they they were under the rule of God, okay? And so God, as as the one who governed the affairs of Israel, put each of these offices in place so that government would be healthy, worship would be healthy, family would be healthy, and society would flourish. And so God gives then the people um, the law to live in accordance with God's commands. Well, this guy Melchizedek that we keep hearing about, he pre-existed the law. You got to go way back before the law was given and when you read about him, it, we, we, I would encourage you to go back to our study in Genesis. And, and Rob did the sermon on Genesis 14 where we talked about Melchizedek, and it's really helpful, it's really insightful for me. Um, I, it helped me connect a lot of dots about who this guy is. But the story is this, in Genesis, Abraham, who is the father of the Israelite people, this, this ancient patriarch named Abraham, he has gone to war with these kings who are, who are like trying to control the region essentially. These kings are trying to control the region and Abraham goes to war with these kings and God gives Abraham a victory and Abraham is coming home and, and this man named Melchizedek comes out and he meets Abraham. And it says a few things about Melchizedek. It says he's the king of Salem, and the and, and Salem means peace, so he's the king of peace. And it and it and it says he's a king of righteousness. And it says he's a priest of the most high God. So I wanted to drill into this. And I love I love history. And I know some people go, me too, and some people go, Oh no. You know, like, oh boy, here we go. But this is very just brief thought. There was in in the nineteen twenties. There was an archaeological dig of a city in what's modern-day Syria called Ugarit. And in Ugarit, there were over 1,500 Canaanite documents found from around the 14th, 15th century before the time of Christ. And they recorded Canaanite life from back to the time of Melchizedek. And what they tell us is that early Canaanites worshipped the one true God and that as those as those generations progressed that they started to walk away from the worship of the one true God. And so what happens in the story of Abraham and Melchizedek is Abraham is among all these kings that are pagans and they're worshiping Baal and they're worshiping Dagon, these other deities, but there's this one guy named Melchizedek who still worships the Most High God. And so he's still worshiping God. And he's a priest and he's a king. Now, this is unique because after God gives the law to Moses, no one serves both of those roles. There's a guy named King Saul who assumes the, the, like, the role of, of providing sacrifice, and God judges him. And you see that several times throughout ancient Israel where a king would try to take on the role of a priest, and there would be consequences. So way back at the time of Melchizedek, he was both a king and a priest. And so a comparison is being made between Melchizedek and Jesus because Jesus is the king and the priest of his people. He's the king of kings who fulfilled all the responsibilities of kingship He's the priest, the high priest of his people who enters into the presence of the Father through his own blood, making sacrifice and atonement for our sins so that by the blood of Jesus we can be set free. So he's our high priest, so we pray in the name of Jesus. And then he's the prophet, the, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, which is the sign that points back, in Hebrews 1, he's the final prophet through whom the Lord has spoken. So Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills these roles. And so he's like Melchizedek, this person who literally he draws the parallel or the analogy that he says Abraham was the like ancestor to Levi, who was the like, like the priestly tribe. So literally, when Abraham goes into this interaction with Melchizedek, he actually pays, pays tithes to Melchizedek. And so Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek, so is the priestly line of Levi. They actually pay homage and pay tithes to Melchizedek. So he's drawing this parallel. A couple other interesting things, and we'll move on. He's not only a King of righteousness and king of peace, but he's a priest of the Most High God. He's both king and priest. He has, this is interesting, no known beginning, no known parentage, and he has no known end. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. Tithes are paid to him. So what we believe is that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. We don't, I, the, the, the pastors and elders of this church would not hold the view that Melchizedek was like an ancient Image or a Christophany or appearance of Jesus. We would say he was a type of Christ. Like David was a type of Christ. Someone who sort of foreshadows Jesus. Alright? Okay. Everybody can, can that's it. That's all history. Okay? That's Melchizedek. Why, why is the writer of Hebrews comparing him to Jesus? We'll see that as we work through this now. Okay? So, there's two key entities in these first two verses that are at work. The priesthood and the law. The priesthood and the law. So in ancient worship of Israel, there were two things that people sort of abided by. The first was they worshiped under the priesthood. So the priest was a man who would, uh, like God would call these men to serve by offering for the people, the sacrifice of animals to the Lord. And what he would do is he would take the blood of the animals, and then that blood would be poured out to cover the sin of the people. The way that I always remember why did blood have to be shed is this. The wages of sin is death, so sin brings death. Sin brings death. Everybody with me? Blood gives life. Blood gives life. Blood covers sin. That which gives life covers that which brings death. So that, that helps me connect why was blood shed. So the animal would be sacrificed. The priest's job, one of his jobs, was to spread that blood Over the sin of the people, and so there was this role of priests, where these priests were men who would be called by God to to carry this out. And then the law, the law was given by God so that people knew how to live their lives. And this is important, I think, in understanding um, how the law worked. God gave the law for specific reasons, and then He didn't give it for other reasons that people. Might, might mistake and think that he gave it for them. I'm going to get into that. So I want you to understand uh, two things that the law provided for people. The first one is this. The law provides people with the means of recognizing their sin. So the law of God, when I read through the Ten Commandments, you ever hear somebody say, man, I'm a pretty good person. I follow the Ten Commandments. Well, no, they don't, they don't follow the Ten Commandments. Ain't nobody ever followed the Ten Commandments except Jesus. Honor your father and your mama. Anybody break that one? Some people are like, no, like not much, right, but you broke it one time, one time. Some people are like, oh, yeah, like hourly as a kid. Some of you were that kid, you know, like honor your, your mother and your father, and then there's like, it's like children obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. And, and when you work through the Ten Commandments, they're a summary of the greater law. We're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers, and so the law exposes our inability when somebody, if, if, if you ever wrestle with this and you think, I'm a pretty good person, I obey the Ten Commandments, or I follow God's law, if you really study through the law, what you realize is you're not able to follow the law. You just keep messing up. This is why Paul's like, I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law, but sin produced in me every evil manner of desire. For I wouldn't know, he says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said don't covet but the law produced in me an understanding and an awareness of my own sin. We've all coveted, I know that, I know I have. The second thing that the law provides for us is, or provided for these people was a way for them to worship the Lord through obedience. So they could, the, the law provided like, the, the means for which the people could worship the Lord. So you had within the law a way that people could obey God. Obedience is a way that we can worship and it's a way that our faith can be fleshed out and lived out. Now, let's say this, two, two, two more thoughts about the law. The first one is this, the law is good but it does not provide salvation. And it never was God's intention for the law to provide salvation. So before Jesus came into the world, when people were living according to the law and there were earthly priests and there were commandments and laws, that law never provided salvation. And I want to give you some thoughts on the law that within the, this is something that I think is important. When I'm talking a lot of times to teenagers, they'll say, um, is it, they, they, might, they might ask something like this, is it sinful to get a tattoo? And they'll ask that because they'll, and I don't have any tattoos. I got I got some good scars, which are way cooler. Um, you pay for those a different way. All right, so, um, but I don't have any tattoos, so I feel like I can address this objectively. Say, so is it okay to get a tattoo? Well, sometimes people will point to an Old Testament verse in the law that says not to mark your bodies. So, okay, well, what do we do with that? How can you say no? You can get a tattoo, and or or no, the law says you can't get a tattoo. And you start reading through all the old laws, and there's like there's one law that says you can't mix two types of grass or two types of seed. Well, hybrid seeding is like a major part of our uh, agricultural like, market. So does that mean that, that farmers that do that are breaking the law? Sean Clark oversees our grounds here at Snowbird, and one of the things they'll do is they'll overseed, and they'll often overseed with a blend. Y'all see where I'm going. Or is that, are they, these guys breaking the law? How do we differentiate? The law also says don't murder. Well, we're not going to, we, we know, we, like, we, you feel that that's wrong, right? So what do you do with the law of God where you go, what applies to me and what doesn't? So a l- l- super quick overview, and we're going to include about a seven-page document of Old Testament overview notes that Spencer put together. We'll include that in the email this week. So think of it this way, the law of God given to the people, um, gave them a, a like an order of living that covered everything from i wrote down several several areas of life civil life criminal law ceremonial law moral law and there were compassion laws to provide for the poor to pr- provide for the destitute laws also that provide governance for the government and family and society and the church or the place of worship. So the laws were like permeating every part of society. So how do we know what laws do we keep, what laws do we not have to adhere to today? Well, the Bible says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Jesus was the end of the law to everyone who believes. The word end is from the Greek word Telios, which is the root word of tetelestai. So when Jesus is on the cross and he says tetelestai, he's saying it is finished. What he's saying is the work is complete. I have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. I have lived to perfection, laid down my life as a substitute, died so that people might have eternal life. It is fulfilled. It is complete. I've done the work. Everybody with me? Tetelestai. Okay, to tell us that. So Christ is the end or the completion or the fulfillment or the bringing to perfection of the law. Jesus did that. So when we take all of the laws and all their 600 plus individual statements, we apply Jesus to them. Here's what we find Some of the laws Jesus annulled. Some of the laws Jesus annulled. Some of the law through his fulfillment, when he brought them to completion, they were annulled. No longer deal with those laws. An example would be dietary laws. Because Jesus would say to Peter, Peter, eat whatever you like, rise, kill, eat. You don't have to follow those dietary laws anymore. Paul would write about this in Romans 14. Some of the laws, so some would be annulled, some of the laws would be transformed. An example of this would be the law of the Sabbath, where, where there were rules about on the Sabbath, you just say stay still, you just chill, you worship, you rest. Then, what we've learned about already in Hebrews, here's another one of those signs, is that Jesus expands and transforms the principle of the Sabbath and says, I'm bringing you into Sabbath rest as a believer, you live your life in peace and rest. And so the Sabbath idea or the Sabbath principle becomes bigger than it was in the Old Testament law. The third thing Jesus does is he intensifies some laws. Law said, Don't murder. I say, Don't hate somebody in your mind or your heart. Law says, Don't commit adultery. I say, Don't look with lust at a woman in your heart. So he intensifies those laws, right? And then the last thing is there are some laws that Jesus just keeps. Don't steal. Be faithful to worship the Lord and him alone. So when we approach the law of God, we need to approach, approach it through the door of Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He completed it. He perfected it. We walk through Jesus into fellowship with God. Okay? There's two errors that people make concerning the law again. Following the law saves me. We said that. And the second error that people make is this: the law doesn't matter for me. There's this whole movement. We'll get into it. It's a big word. It's called antinomianism. It's the idea that we the, we're anti-law. It's bad. Paul says. Well, Paul says, "What should we say? Is the law bad? May it never be. We would not say that. Jesus is the door we walk through to understand the application of the law to the believer. Okay. You don't live by the Ten Commandments, you live by Jesus and His Word and His teaching and His indwelling Spirit. All right, the rest of the verses will go quickly, promise. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This even becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus is a different kind of priest and has a different kind of relationship with the law than the Old Testament priest. Simply put, simply put is this. Jesus' relationship with the law is that he fulfilled it to completion. The, old, the, old, the priests under the old law had to have their own sins atoned for. They weren't perfect. Right, like, you ever meet a pastor? Those guys are not perfect. But the priests of God were so imperfect that they had to have sacrifices for their own sin. Jesus did not have to have a sacrifice for his own sin because he was perfect in every way. But he identifies with us in our sin. We studied this five weeks ago. Because he himself was tempted in every way, just as you are, but he didn't sin. So he identifies with us in our sin and our weakness. Also, he makes reference to the tribe of Judah. All the Old Testament priests came from Levi, the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and his life was indestructible. He conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is better than the law because he provides salvation for us. He removes our guilt and shame. He gives us a new heart. He was able to perfectly fulfill the law. And in so doing, he completed the law. And at one point, the scripture is very clear that the old law was written on tablets of stone. What Jesus does is he writes his law on our hearts. So that we're guided by conviction. If you try to live your life following rules, you will be frustrated You will be discouraged. You will be at sometimes under the weight of guilt and shame because you keep messing up. You keep going back to your addiction. You keep going back to your sin problem. And then you feel guilty and it tends to create a cycle. Here's what happens. Here's what tends to be the human tendency with sin. If I'm not doing something in the power of Jesus, it's I'm going to do better. I'm not going to cuss. And then I cuss. And then I cuss because I cussed. And it's a cycle. And then I feel guilty. And I cuss myself for cussing. You see, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's almost comical, but this is what happens. And a much, maybe a much graver example would be a person who deals with addiction to alcohol, addiction to pornography, addiction to pills. And they get clean for a little while, but they're sort of doing it in their own strength. And then they fall off the wagon is the the phrase people use. And then they feel guilty. And under the guilt and shame, they go back into the cycle of that behavior. Following the law brings frustration if you're following the law for righteousness. But if we surrender our lives to Jesus, he has perfectly fulfilled the law. And you know what you'll find? A life lived in surrender to Jesus, a life lived in pursuit of Jesus, a life lived under the blood of Jesus, a life lived in communion and fellowship with Jesus is a life lived that looks really, really, really close to a life of adherence to the law. You're not trying to hit the mark. You're trying to walk with Jesus, surrender to Jesus, live in fellowship with Jesus, walk and live in in repentance. And so, Verse 20, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus guarantees something greater and better than the law. The blood of Jesus is the blood that ratifies the covenant. And so it is a greater covenant that we live under. Thanks be to God. And what's more, we are called a kingdom of priests. Jesus is our high priest. The writer of, of uh, uh, well, Peter, the disciple of Jesus who wrote the letters, First and Second Peter, says we're like a kingdom of priests. We, one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith is that of the, the, the priesthood of the believer. If you grew up Catholic, you grew up going to confession and speaking to a man who then mediated between you and God. And, and Peter says, no, 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 no. You we are a kingdom of priests. There's no longer an office of priest needed in the structure of the church because you get to commune with God. Talk with God. Cry and weep before God. Confess your sin to God. Worship Jesus. He's our high priest. And he sits on our behalf in the presence of the Father. And he stands on our behalf having clothed us in his righteousness. Our righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is called the guarantor of our covenant, and it's a greater covenant. We'll get more into that in the coming weeks, and we'll look at a couple more aspects of Melchizedek and that comparison. But the point is this. Jesus provides a greater salvation for us than our own obedience to God's law ever could. It's the first time that word covenant is used, but it will become a central point and focus. The covenant of Jesus is sealed in and ratified by the blood of Jesus. So you and I have relationship with God through the work of Jesus. He fulfilled the law. If you've been frustrated in your Christian life and you're like, I just keep messing up, turn to Jesus. He's provided a better covenant. The covenant that says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The covenant that says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Paul goes on in that Romans 6, 7, and 8 where he talks about the the law and the frustration that he deals with and I know what the law says and I keep messing up and at one point he says, in, in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, what will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus. Jesus is a better covenant. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus' blood cleanses me. Worshiping Jesus fulfills me. My relationship with Jesus is the answer to every one of life's problems. Maybe Maybe not the... doesn't mean you're not going to go through hardship, but Jesus goes with you. doesn't mean you're not going to deal with anxiety, fear of death, depression, but Jesus goes with you. So it's important to get into that box and feel the breath of God. Open his word and commune with him. Because we serve a risen Savior who is the end of the law and the door through whom we walk, through which we walk into fellowship with God because of the work that Jesus has done. What we receive is his righteousness given to us. It's Palm Sunday, that's why this whole week kicked off 2,000 years ago, so that he could walk that hill, walk to that cross, lay down his life, and by the Spirit be raised and then say, oh, the Spirit that just did that, guess what, I'm going to breathe that on you and you're going to have that Spirit, and you're going to live under the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, not under the power of your own righteousness to follow rules, to follow rules. The law is never meant to save. It was meant to point us to Jesus. We walk through the door in fellowship with Jesus. We live out his plans and purposes for our lives. That's the hope of Resurrection Week, Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider the covenant that is ratified in your blood, as we consider the sacrifice that you made for us, as we think about um, your perfect fulfillment of the law, to even to imagine that Lord Jesus, you never, you never sinned, you never yielded to temptation, that you could say, hey, the law says don't murder. I say don't even think that way, and you nailed it. You fulfilled it. You didn't even think that way. Not only did you meet the righteous requirements of the law, but you elevated aspects of it and then fulfilled that for us. You call us to something higher. You call us to something deeper. You call us to lean into your grace and your goodness and your strength. You call us into a greater covenant, having completed the old one and given us freedom from condemnation. I pray for men, women, boys, and girls that might be here tonight that are wrestling with their own righteousness, trying to figure it out, trying to live good enough, helping to see tonight that Jesus lived good enough and you give them righteousness. For those of us that are in Christ but keep falling back into that old legalistic way. Or for those who abuse the freedoms that you've given us by assuming that there's no call to holiness. May we not make the mistakes of living to the extremes outside of the law or in opposition to the law. But also not look into the law for our righteousness. May we look to Jesus as our high priest and be grateful because of it worship you because of the better covenant you've provided in Jesus name. Amen.